Welcome to another Charity Chat episode. I'm your host, Osman Mughal. I'm delighted to be joined by Shay Obakin, CEO of Centerpoint. In today's discussion, we touch on Shay's experience, how he got into the charitable sector and the work of Centerpoint, including the programmes and initiatives it runs to ensure long-term meaningful change for the young people it serves. We also discuss how COVID-19 has impacted young people and what have been the key learnings and challenges from the pandemic. We also touch on what steps organisations can take to genuinely improve diversity and inclusion. And we finally discuss what makes a successful and effective leader. This podcast is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. Good afternoon, uh, Shay. How are you and how has lockdown been treating you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. But I must say uh, that um, I am fed up of lockdown now. Uh, I will get back uh, out there. Um, So, yeah, I'm delighted that the vaccination program is going on and that we can see now a little chink of light at the end of what's been a rather long tunnel. So, yeah, good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shay, for joining us. And we really appreciate your time. And likewise, I can't wait until end of lockdown. I think everybody is looking forward to June the 21st. Um, before we get into the podcast and we talk about Centerpoint, COVID-19 mm. and other areas, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew you to the charity sector and in particular Centerpoint? So, um I am a chartered accountant by training. I um, spent quite a bit of time working for uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers where I trained and qualified. Uh, And then I had a a little spell in corporate banking. Uh, But I got uh, into housing to start with via mortgage banking uh, many years ago. And I had Uh, a good spell covering a wide range of housing tenures, uh, general needs housing, supported housing, all those kind of things. I had some experience in that. And then I got drawn into uh, charity actually, because I had an opportunity to do a bit of work that was about change management uh, in a charity, which I really, really enjoyed. And that was my first foray out of housing into, into into charities. And so for me, Centerpoint was an opportunity to marry those two things. Uh, and I, I joined Centerpoint uh, initially as director of, director of finance, but I was um, taken very much by the sense that Centerpoint was about young people and about homelessness, both of which are issues that I felt that I could uh, make a difference in, and there were issues that were important uh, to me. So then I uh, uh, became chief executive of Centerpoint uh, just over 10, 10 years ago uh, now, and uh, I'm delighted with the impact that we have had and continue to have uh, through Centerpoint's 50-year history. 
And Shay, you mentioned before your career as a chartered accountant. Do you feel those skills, those responsibilities, and also an understanding when you worked in housing, do you think that prepared you well for your role as CEO? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, I, I have to say, I, I'm a great believer in this idea that every experience that you have is useful. Uh, not, none of it is useless to be thrown away. For me in particular, uh, starting out life in the commercial world and then ending up in, uh, in, in charity uh, is um, an interesting journey because when I hear people talk about charities, um, it, it, I, I think we often miss the point uh, that many charities, particularly medium-sized and big charities, they are complex organizations full of entrepreneurs, uh, people who uh, are social entrepreneurs wanting to use their skills to achieve a social change. And so you bring together everything that you have learned along the way uh, to make that change happen for people. And that, I think, is really the essence of, uh, of, of charity work. Absolutely. And that leads us nicely onto the next section as well. And I'm sure many of our listeners will have heard of Centerpoint as a leading youth homelessness charity. But could you outline what is the mission of Centerpoint? What do you want to achieve as an organization? And what is some of the programs and services that you provide to the young people that you serve? So Centerpoint's mission is simple, really. Uh, but not so easy to achieve. We want to end youth homelessness. That's it. We just want to end youth homelessness. And so uh, we, it, most people know Centerpoint for the homelessness work that we do. But actually, it's only just the beginning of what we, we do. Centerpoint's work is about three things, I would say. The first one is what I would describe as safety and security. And then the second one is about inspiring, enabling and motivating young people to achieve great things for themselves. And the third one is about helping young people to move on to live independently. We believe that every young person should have a job and a home. And so when young people come to Centerpoint, they come to a place of safety and security. And you know, in that sphere, what we are doing is offering young people the support that they need, whether they have complex needs, whether they have medium support needs, whether they have low support needs. What we're doing there is meeting young people at that point of their need from a place of safety and security. But then once they're with us, we have to enable them and inspire them and motivate them to then achieve important things. And for us, that means that we focus on three things. Some things that are about the skills that they will need for life. Some things that are about the skills that they will need for work so that they can have a job. And some things that are about helping them to get healthy and learn to stay healthy. So in the range that's about skills for life, we're teaching young people about life skills, about money-wise, money skills, about healthy relationships, 
mentoring and coaching, all those kind of things we're doing. And the things that are about skills for work, that's about us actually focusing on helping young people to have um, qualifications. So they do things with us that means that they can actually gain qualifications through which they can get jobs. And then we help them into work. Because once a young person has a job, then they can have a home of their own that they can afford. And so we think that to get to a job and a home, you need both skills for life and skills for work. But there's no point getting into any of that if you don't attend to the health issues that young people come with when they arrive at center point. So we have to deal with uh, things to do with their emotional well-being and helping them to, to get well and stay healthy. And the important thing is this, we do all of that work in what we describe as a psychologically informed way. And that means that we ourselves are uh, wanting to understand where young people are coming from so that we can set in context why they are behaving in the way that they're behaving. And then we want to help young people to understand that for themselves and for ourselves so that they can make the changes that they need. And we think that that is important because once a young person has a job, then the next challenge for us is how do we help them to move on and live independently? And we're doing some interesting things uh, that I can tell you about if you want uh, in that space. Absolutely. Go, go ahead, Shay. Well, so we've just uh, launched, we have launched uh, something that we are describing as our independent living program. And what we're doing here is we are saying, well, we get a lot of young people to uh, learn the skills that they need for work and they get a job. But when they get that job, particularly in big cities, they can't still afford a place of their own to go and rent, to move on to. Think about what it costs to rent a house in London, a place to live in London. And think about if you had a job and you were earning minimum wage, whether you'd be able to rent. It's very difficult. So we've created this bridge, which we're calling independent living. And what it is, is we're building homes where a young person would not be charged rent that is any more than about a third, around a third of whatever their income is whatever their income is, we aim to charge them about a third of that income, certainly no more than 40%. And what that means is that the young person has a place to live that they can afford on whatever their income is, and they have enough money left to actually live. They don't have to worry about housing. They can concentrate on building a career for themselves, doing well in that career, and then they can move on from this scheme into either the private rental sector or they're buying something for themselves. But it gives young people the opportunity to build a career and then go from there. Now, in order to ensure that we can stay true to charging young people a third of their income, and that's what is different about this scheme. We're not charging market rent. We're not charging social rent. We're not charging affordable rent. We're saying, What's your income? This is the proportion of it that you're going to pay. In order to do that, we are uh, using opportunities for to build on land that we can borrow. So we borrow the land, 
We build on it, but what we build crucially is modular housing, right? And then when you need the land back, we can simply take that housing away, put it somewhere else and give you your land back. It means we can open up more opportunities for young people to have this kind of opportunity, the front door of their own, an opportunity to build their own uh, careers. We're really excited about it. We think that this is a model that others can follow to open the market up for young people. I've got a couple of things from what you've just mentioned that have struck me. I, it's really refreshing to hear you speak about the holistic approach in the way that you support your young people. Also mm. what I got from that was your ability to listen to the young people and understand their needs directly. I, I feel in this space, unfortunately, there's a lot of stereotypes that do exist, but those stereotypes are most of the time untrue. And it's about listening to those individual young people, understanding what are their ambitions, what are their aspirations, because we've all got talents. But yes. It's about providing them that equality of opportunity for them to, to make something of themselves. And, and the third point is around living in dignity. The, the program that you spoke about just now is a, is a wonderful example of true innovation in our sector and giving somebody the opportunity to live in a home that they're paying for gives them that sense of dignity. And all of those things you talked about, Usman, are absolutely right. Um, one, one experience that I have that I want to share is that um, you're quite right that young people can so easily be stereotyped. And yet, my experience is that if you give young people the opportunity, if you give them a platform, if they know why things are happening, actually, they do uh, respond very well, by and large, and they make changes very quickly and very rapidly, and they succeed. You know, I can tell you, for instance, that one of the things we know of why our work is sustainable is that despite the fact that many young people arrive at our doors unable to uh, read or write English properly, the, the, the levels of literacy and numeracy can be low for some young people. But despite all of that, nine times out of 10, young people achieve positive outcomes by the time they leave us. In fact, we know that three in five young people leave Central Point going into a job or going into higher education. We know that Three in five young people leave Central Point off to go and live independently and able to go and live independently. So young people only need a platform, an opportunity. And the vast majority of them grasp it. The stereotype that we often hear of young people is just not right. So you're quite right about that. And I feel it's important as well we empower the young people and organizations don't make decisions on behalf of those individuals, but give them the tools to empower them to make their own decisions. Because along with that comes responsibility and accountability, but also a sense of self-worth and self-belief. And in addition to that is that when they leave us, they're gonna be making those decisions for themselves. So isn't it better if they learn to make those decisions now? And if they get things wrong, there's a safety net. But actually, then they learn that, you know, they've got that wrong. They'll make a different decision next time. Um, so I do think it is really important that young people are involved in 
are the things that we, we don't do things to young people. We do things with young people. And that is really important. Spot on, Shay. I couldn't have put it better myself. I now wanted to um, slightly change tact and move on to mm. COVID-19. Right. And we know that COVID-19 has impacted everybody's life in one, in one way or another. But there's no doubt that it has affected people disproportionately. So my question really is, how has COVID-19 impacted the young people that you work with? And how have you as an organization pivoted and adapted to meet, this, to meet these new needs? So the first thing to say is you're absolutely right. COVID-19 has you know, affected young people in many ways disproportionately. Uh, that, that's absolutely correct. Uh, for, for us, we've seen an increase in youth homelessness. There has been an increase in homelessness generally, but we've seen an increase in youth homelessness. So we, we run a national helpline for young people. And I can tell you, young people who are homeless, so they ring up the helpline, they're asking for help and advice, mm-hmm. uh, and we do that. And I can tell you that in the last six months, calls to that helpline have gone up by 50%. So that's quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, is that those calls are more, the complexity of issues that young people are dealing with is worse in each of those calls. So each of those calls take longer. So we can see a, an increase in homelessness. And why is that? It's because often when young people first become homeless, they don't even know that they're homeless. They go and look for a friend or an uncle or an auntie or somewhere where they can bed down and they sofa off. They sleep on the sofa, they sleep on, on floors, and so on and so forth. And they try and carry on their, their lives that way. Well, lockdown meant that they couldn't do that anymore. So the, up, that option to sofa off uh, was gone. So that, that's, that's one of the reasons why we, we've seen this rise in homelessness, in overt homelessness. So that's one way in which it's affected young people. The second way in which it's affected young people is around mental health. So if you think about lockdown, what it means, what it meant for a lot of young people, and, and still does mean, is you are in living in a room, in a hostel, and you're locked down in that room, in that hostel, day after day after day after day after day. I, that has led to more isolation. And in fact, we know that over half of homeless young people now have some form of mental health problem, mental health challenge, partly because of lockdown. So COVID has increased the mental health challenges that young people face. And then if you think about employment and unemployment. Now, COVID has affected young people's employment disproportionately. The sort of sectors that a lot of young people work in, retail, catering, hospitality, uh, entertainment, they're actually the ones being shut down. They're the ones where young people have lost jobs. So it's not surprising that 
um, youth unemployment today is running at three times the general employment rate, which I think general employment rate is roughly 5%, I would say. Youth unemployment is running at nearly 15%, much higher than general employment. So young people have been badly affected by um, uh, uh, COVID-19. And what we have been able to do to try and respond to some of these challenges is to, one, uh, as quickly as we could, move some of those interventions that will help young people into an, a virtual provision. Things like the health work that we would do with young people. For example, a young person might be suffering isolation, anxiety, depression, uh, suicidal ideation. They would see uh, um, psychotherapists. Now we can't do that face to face, so we moved that online. Young people who are doing all the skills work that I talked about before, functional skills, uh, vocational training, all that sort of stuff, we were able to move that online. Now, that sounds simple, but it's not so simple. It's not so simple because when you want to do that, then you realize that actually young people don't have the equipment, so they can't take the online service because they haven't got the equipment. If they have the equipment, they don't have the, the data or the Wi-Fi. So in order to make that work, we had to find young people the equipment. We had to find them uh, the connection you know, with which they can then receive that provision. So that was uh, quite challenging for us, but we've been able to do that. Also, we've been out campaigning for jobs for young people, and we've been lucky in that we've been able to find here and there opportunities that have been ring-fenced for young people. So that's about looking at where, where is activity happening and where is the need, and can we connect young people with that need? So, for example, one of the things that we've done between last year and now is we've launched warehousing apprenticeships uh, 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 and logistics traineeships and apprenticeships because there's opportunity there. Uh, and we're beginning to connect young people with that range of opportunities. So that's the way that we have to think about it. But make no mistake, COVID has affected young people disproportionately. Thank you so much for that explanation, Jay. And looking into the future a little bit, we know that COVID-19 and the impact of COVID-19 is here to stay for many more years to come. And although the country is looking forward to the lockdown ending on June 21st, we know that the issues, mental health and others that you've mentioned there will be here for many months and potentially years, particularly for the most vulnerable communities. Yes. How do you see Centrepoint's delivery changing in order to meet that demand or pivoting to meet that demand? So I think uh, that the acceleration into digitization that has happened in the last year is something that we shouldn't give up easily going forward. In fact, it's something we should 
accelerate because it means that we can reach more young people with many of these services, including young people who don't necessarily live in a center point residential service. So that's something that we really can build on. And if you were thinking about, I mean, one of the things we're proud of is that throughout the pandemic, we, what, one of the goals we set ourselves at the beginning was we will do everything in our power to ensure that we don't close any hostel because of the pandemic. Uh, and that means we, we need to keep staff safe, keep young people safe. Uh, uh, and we've been able to do that. Now we have to learn what was it that enabled us to do that? And can we build on all of that going forward? Two, uh, and this comes back to also using the virtual environment. You know, one of the things that every charity suffered from was the closure of mass participation events. Things like the marathon, which annually would raise 65, 70 million pounds for charities, boom, gone. Uh, so you have to find other ways to raise money. Uh, every year, Center Point organizes a, a sleep out for our supporters. It, it is a big event in our calendar, but we couldn't do that because we bring thousands of people together one night to sleep out. Uh, we couldn't do that. So we've launched some interesting virtual events which were successful. And so we've got to build on, on that. One of those events, for instance, is something we call stay up. So you can't sleep out, but you can stay up in your own house and you can do all kinds of different activities while you're staying up. And we can connect you with other people who are staying up, you know, that, that you don't know. So there's a community of people that are staying up, doing different things together. It works really well. So we've got to build on those kinds of things. And then we have to take broader learning opportunities, I think, from COVID-19. I mean, one of the interesting things for me is that, you know, the government uh, had said that they wanted to end rough sleeping. And a target date, I think 2027, was put forward to end rough sleeping. Actually, what happened at the beginning of COVID-19 was that the government launched a program called Everyone In, and they got everybody in, all rough sleepers. They got all rough sleepers in. So for me, that shows what can be achieved when different parts of society, corporates, government, charities, come together and meet a need. The question is, now that we're coming out of the pandemic, how do we hold on to that so we don't go back to seeing rough sleeping in the way that we saw it before. We know that there's roughly 200,000 less social rented properties in circulation than there were about 10 years ago. So I think that that is something we should hold on to along with government and other parts of society. How do we keep the momentum here so we don't return to rough sleeping, which by the way, is only the tip of the homelessness iceberg. There's big stuff going on beneath that visible bit uh, that is rough sleeping. And one of the things that I find encouraging is that you know, the public's response 
to support those in need through this pandemic has been inspiring. And for me, it is an excellent opportunity uh, for us to build on that public support to help those in our communities and in, in our society that are most uh, in need. Spot on. And something that's come across from your explanation there, Shay, is around being innovative and trying new things in order to meet the same mission of Centrepoint. Yes, as you've mentioned, London Marathon could no longer go on due to the pandemic, but you found new in innovative ways of working. I now wanted to just touch on the point that you made around partnership working. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. as you will know, solving such a broad issue cannot be achieved by one organization alone. So I wanted to get a sense from you, what partners, you mentioned the government there, what partners do Centerpoint work with? And how have you continued these relationships during the COVID-19 period? And have those relationships deepened and become more valuable to you as an organization within that period? So I think you're absolutely right. Youth homelessness cannot be ended by Centerpoint alone. We have to work with others. We have to be, we have to have partnerships that enable us uh, to end youth homelessness because it's a, it's a systemic problem rather than so a, a one-off problem that we can solve on our own. So all, all our services work with other organizations to help to prepare young people to live independently. We've always done that. That might be with, with local authorities. It might be with social services. It might be with local mental health and drug and alcohol services. We work with lots of other housing associations uh, from whom we, we get a whole range of, of properties that, that we use. But we must now build on those partnerships. They become even much more important to us now. And of course, every member of the public who donates to us is in, some, is in partnership with us to help end youth homelessness. We must remain accountable to those donors so they can see how their contribution is helping to achieve that end. One of the, one of the things that we did several years ago is we began to build a network of other youth homelessness organizations across the country that we refer to as center point partners. Today, there is more than 100 organizations in that network up and down the country. We want to build that network, build on that network. And it is of great mutual benefit to us because we learn from them and they learn from us. And through the pandemic, one of the things that we've been doing, for instance, is helping our network uh, in uh, communication about the virus, in supply of PPE, uh, for instance. It took us a while to get the PPE that we need. But once we started to get the PPE, we'd be sharing it with that network that we've got. So they've got the PPEs they need to keep their hostels open as well and work with uh, the young people that they work with. Now, we are just entering a new strategic period in which we are saying our mission has always been to end youth homelessness, but actually call us brave, call us foolish, call us what you want, 
We want to end it by 2037. That's in 16 years from now. We want to end youth homelessness in 16 years. To do that, we have to work in partnership with others. We just can't do it on our own at all. So this partnership uh, work is even more crucial for us now to build on it. And as I say, that's not just about other organizations. It's about governments, local government, central government, but it's also about people. How do we draw people into this issue to give time, to give money, to come and work with us, to help end youth homelessness? So yeah, working in partnership is really important now. And it seems from what you've said, Shay, that COVID-19 has brought its challenges, but it's also shone a spotlight at what we can do as a society and as a sector to end youth homelessness. Yeah. But it's also brought into question, why weren't we doing more around this subject 10 years ago? Why has it taken the COVID-19 pandemic for us to concentrate? Because young people are our future mm. and we must invest in them, support them and empower them. And we have a responsibility as a society and also as a sector to ensure that we're behind them 100%. And I'm just excited to see what progress you and Centerpoint and other organisations you're working with will make. And hopefully that dream of ending youth homelessness by 2037 will come true. I, I really hope so. We're, we're going to have a go. We will, I, mean, I, I, I think it's a brave vision, but we're going to have a go at making it happen. We believe it is possible to... So today, 120,000 young people, thereabout, every year, approach their local authorities every year asking for help with homelessness. We think it is possible to reduce that number to a negligible figure. And if it is reduced to a negligible figure, we think it is possible to respond to whatever that rump is in an effective way that enables them to transition very quickly from that state into a state of living independent. If we could make that happen, then we can say we've cracked youth homelessness because no young person ever then has to suffer the consequences, the downward spiral that comes with, uh, with youth homelessness. So I believe it is possible. Um, the, and you know, we'll be doing everything in our power to, uh, to make it happen. We'll work with everyone, as I say. We have to. We don't have a choice. We have to find the, the solutions that work. And it doesn't matter whether those solutions were discovered by ourselves or by others. We want to promote those solutions and give credit to wherever they've come from. There are other organizations that are doing lots of good work in this space. I think of Crisis, for instance, doing good work. I think of the Mongols doing good work. We can promote the things that they do that are good, the things that we do that are good, so we can rep get that replicated across the piece. That's how we're gonna end youth homelessness. You know? uh, so um, I think it's possible. I'm looking forward to it. Agreed. And I completely uh, echo your sentiment that you need a vision to aim for. And for it to be ambition, it gives you only more drive to, to go and meet it as well. I now wanted to 
turn to um, an equally important topic, which mm. is one of equity, diversity and inclusion. And within the sector, in the last year, as you will know, there have been many conversations about how do we as a sector, the charity sector, become more equitable, more diverse and more inclusive across a range of different areas. Mm. And also the COVID-19 pandemic has put a further spotlight on this issue because we know that certain communities were at more risk of COVID-19. People from a black, Asian and minoritized ethnic group I don't like using that term, but for, for this purpose, I shall use it. Mm. The BAME community were four times more likely to die as a result of COVID-19. My question to you is really around what steps can organizations take to ensure that their organization is genuinely diverse and inclusive? So th this is a really important topic, equity, diversity and um uh, and inclusion, a really important topic. It is one, it is an issue that, you know, the Centre Point has always been concerned about. So if you look at, uh, at the, the top of our organisation, the board or the senior executive, you will see the diversity uh, of, of thought, of people um, in, in, those, in those groups. But even us, we must do more. It's not enough. We must go further. And we have taken some steps and we are still taking some additional steps that I, we believe are important uh, and commendable. So one of the things we've done is we have set out a new people strategy and we are putting inclusion right at the heart of that strategy, involving colleagues in specifying what inclusion means for them what diversity means for them, what equity means for them. I often have, I often use a, a, an analogy here. Um, I, I, I often say, you can invite someone to a party and they can come to your party. And we could look at your party and it's full of diverse faces, but that doesn't mean that they're included because, you know, if people are, hanging around on the fringes of your party and they're not invited to dance, they're not included. So the question is, how do we get people to the dance floor and get people engaged? That for me is what inclusion really is. So we want everyone in our organization to be on that dance floor. We have set up a working group of ethnic people and we're working with that group to listen to that group, to help us ensure that we're hearing the right things and we're doing the right things right through our organization. We set up a confidential and completely independent reporting line. So if anyone in our organization has any issues whatsoever about uh, uh, equality, equity, diversity, inclusion, they can report it either named or anonymously to that independent line. And we follow through on every report that comes through there. We don't just follow through on it. We, we, we're transparent about it. This is what's been reported. Here's what we're doing about it. We have, uh, so that's another thing we're doing. We have formally 
adopted McGregor Smith recommendations. Uh, so Ruby McGregor Smith looked at this issue uh, a few years ago, and she came up with a range of recommendations. It's about twenty of them uh, that she says every organisation should be exercised about. We've adopted those recommendations, and we're working towards them. So, for example, she recommended that everyone in an organization should have proper training in unconscious bias. We have done that. Every single person, it's a mandatory training for us now. Every single person in our organization has gone through it and we will keep that training uh, refreshed. And every new person who joins us must go through the training. We are creating diverse interview panels. So we can ensure that you know, um, people, when we recruit, it's gone through that sort of rigor. We are encouraging our employees to report issues as I've noted before. And we are now in the process of publishing aspirational targets at every level of our organization, not just at the top, at every level that we can work towards you know, to ensure that you know, we are as diverse as the people in our organization and the young people that we, we, we serve. So those are just a few examples of you know, some of the things that we are doing. Uh, we think that this, this, this recommend, these things are commendable for everyone to do. It's such an important topic, as you say, something that I think is really important and which I've been working with my senior leadership team where I work is understanding and listening to lived experience within the organization. Mm -hmm. I think one of the challenges is when there is a top-down approach in these instances. When you're looking at an issue like racial and ethnic diversity, the reality is a lot of individuals at board level or senior management level would not identify as BAME. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to understand and have lived experience feed in into your policies, your procedures, your practices, so you know that those policies, procedures and practices actually are meeting the need. And even where an organisation might have a minority ethnic in leadership, that doesn't mean that that person's experience mirrors the experience of other people. So this point about listening is absolutely crucial. You have to listen, and then you must respond to what you hear, not just be dismissive of it, brush it under the carpet, uh, trivialize it, uh, uh, or minimize it. You, you, it. It's a big issue for, for people. And I, for us, that's why that uh, working group is so important. It's so, so important for us. They, 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 they will be our ears and our eyes on the ground. Uh, and, you know, we will be listening hard to what people are saying to us. And we will do our best to ensure that our, our processes are fair and they're transparent. That's, that's it. It's not just that we think that they're fair, but that they're transparent so people understand how they work. Spot on. Your point about the variety of lived experience is so vital. 
my lived experience is very different from somebody else's lived experience. Yeah. Also, what I think is important is by having a more diverse and inclusive workforce where everybody feels comfortable to bring themselves, their whole selves to work, will allow an organization to achieve its mission and its values far more quickly. Because then when you are able to bring your whole self to work, that is the birthplace of innovation. Contribute ideas, suggestions, without the fear of any sort of discrimination. So yes, there are important reasons why any organization should be more diverse and inclusive, but there's also a quote unquote business case for why it should be implemented and embedded at every level of the organization. And I just reinforce what you said a bit earlier, around the importance of listening, but also implementing what you listen to. And if what you're listening to, if it's something that you don't like, then perhaps it's start that we as individuals start looking inward and, and understand why that is. I, I can tell you for sure, when you start listening, you will hear things you don't like. But the, prop, the point is this, if you don't listen, then you never hear those things and you never make any change. And then things just get worse. And I think you're absolutely spot on that organizations today need diversity of thought in order for us to achieve our purpose. Nicely put, Shay. I now wanted to turn to get a bit of your understanding and insight into leadership. As you've already mentioned, you've been chief executive of a leading youth homelessness charity for over 10 years. What advice and tips would you give to anybody starting out in their careers or starting to move up the ladder of what makes a successful and effective leader? And just to put a caveat in there, there is obviously a difference between leaders and managers. And I think Personally speaking, from my experience, you can be a leader without necessarily having the manager job title. But just wanted to get a little bit of your advice and insight into that. So, I, first of all, I believe that everybody in my organization is a leader, whether they recognize that or not, because leadership is about influence. So, if you are working with a bunch of young people and that's that's what you do every day you can influence those young people you're not managing them you can influence them and that for me is leadership and the things that i have found work for me is is yeah there's a whole range of things first of all i'm not shy in setting out a bold vision that I can invite people to follow. Uh, and that, that has worked for me because um, if people can see the expected end, there's a much better chance that they will want to follow. But here's the thing that I've also found really important. Once I set out that bold vision I give people as much room as possible to figure out for themselves how they're going to get there. Because I have 
understood that I don't know everything and I will never know everything. So my role is to create room for ideas, for innovation, for people to come up with the art of the possible, to create room for those ideas to be executed, to accept that, you know, some of those ideas will not work, but that's okay. That's absolutely fine. Come up with the next one and let's, let's have a go. So for me, it's really been helpful to be able to set out the vision and then give people room to work out how we're going to get there uh, and execute that. So that, that's one. Two, I think it's important to listen a lot and to talk a lot. Listen a lot and talk a lot. Uh, I'm deliberately ordering it in that way. Uh, it, it's not useful to just talk a lot. Actually, talking should start from listening. So I think it's really important, and I try to do that, to listen a lot and to talk a lot. Thirdly, I think it is important to genuinely care about your people, to want, not just want your people to succeed, but to actually care about them. Because I think when you do, people know that you care about them, and therefore, when the time comes for you to challenge them directly, they know that that challenge is coming from a place of care. If you don't really care about people, but you challenge them, then actually you just come across as aggressive. They might not tell you to your face, but that's what they're thinking. And that's how they're reacting. And that might work for a while. But my view is that it is unlikely to give you lasting success. So for me, it's important to care about your people directly. I often say to my colleagues that my role is to help them be the best that they can be of themselves. And if I do that job well, then you know, we would all succeed together. So I think that's really important. I think it's important to catch your people doing good things and then amplify it. You know, if you catch people doing wrong things, you, know, you, can, you can challenge people about that privately. And you know, if you care about them, they know that challenge is good and they're more likely to respond. But when you catch people doing good things, amplify it. You amplify it, it means that you know, more people can do similar things. People know that that's what is important. Uh, I think it's important to not be afraid to hold your hand up when you get something wrong, right? I, I think leaders must have the humility to do that. People know that you are human <laughs> and they can see through pretense. So pretending when you've got something wrong, um, not only does you harm, it does the organization harm as well. Not only that, when you get into the habit of holding your hand up when you get something wrong, you create room for others to do the same thing, to acknowledge their own errors. And then you can all learn from it very quickly, correct your course if you need to, and move on. Everyone benefits. 
And then I think leaders need to be scanners. They need to be scanners. You need to be watchful of your environment. You need to scan it frequently. And then you need to be ready to move quickly, as quickly as you can, as that environment is changing. If you do all of the things that I've said before, you have a much better chance of getting people to move along with you when you do need to move quickly. So to summarize, I think communicate a lot, be agile, be, bring people together, be kind to people, you know, stay focused, and then you are able to be commercially exterior. Fantastic advice there, particularly when you talk about humility. It's really important that you're able to acknowledge your own shortcomings as a leader and hold your hand up when you're wrong, because I think, as you say, that creates an environment around you within your own smaller circle, but also a domino effect across the whole organization where people feel that they can do that as well. And it, and it creates a more positive work environment. Mm -hmm. We'd like to end with two quick questions. So question one is, what is your main frustration about the sector? Question two is, what do you love about the sector? I think we have a job to do as a sector to get more people to understand and know how big modern charities work. We have to show more of our impact. I don't think we do that enough. Um, and I think that's a point of frustration. Uh, and another point of frustration for me, I think, is that the sector could do with more respect from policymakers. I've said it before, many charities are social entrepreneurs. We're pulling together you know, partners and communities and other resources, and we're bringing all those things together to solve social problems. And yet we're often not given that respect by policymakers compared to the way that policymakers might respond to business, for instance. So I'd like to see more of that. Look, um, charities, charities contribute, I'd say, somewhere between 16 and 18 billion pounds to the economy. They're not insubstantial. Charities employ, I'd say, somewhere between 800,000 and 1 million people. That's not insubstantial. Um, and I'd like to see more of that. I have to say uh, that we charities also have a case to answer in our attitude and behavior uh, about some of these issues to bring people along. Uh, but those are those are some of the things that are, I would say, uh, would be interesting if we could get over. Uh, and what I love about charities is that charities can reach people and places that governments and other people can't. And we are a force for good, generally. And I love that. I love the fact that charities enable people to change their lives for the better. I mean, at a 
very local level. Charities are embedded in the community, you know, generally under the radar, but doing important things that make life better for lots of people. And I love that about charities. Fantastic. And we've now come to an end and it's been wonderful speaking to you today. Really appreciate all of the wisdom, the insights and the experiences that you've shared with us. So thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to hearing about the progress of Centerpoint in the years to come. Thank you very much for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Shay today, whose passion and energy shone throughout. We covered so many areas in today's podcast, but one sentence stuck out for me. We don't do things to young people. We do things with young people. Thank you for listening. And that leads me to thank our corporate sponsors. Charity People, our platinum sponsor. Giant Squid Audio Lab for our podcast kit. Magda Aksumit for our website design. And Forest of Fools who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now. <laughs>